This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Pathfinder. At the Word of the Week, we talk a lot about our favorite fantasy game. The one involving fire-breathing winged lizards and underground catacombs filled with monsters and treasures. The one whose names are two separate components linked by a logogrammatic representation of a common conjunction whose function is the junction of words and phrases and clauses. And no, we're not going to sing that. Meanwhile, we assume you know the game we mean. If not, you might want to listen to the following two episodes, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Disclaimer, that those are two separate words given as the names of specific episodes of this podcast, and any resemblance between those two words and the name of a popular fantasy role-playing game is purely coincidental. We also, as you may have noticed, make a lot of jokes about living in fear of the legal team employed by a certain group of wizards who live in a tower on the coast. Truth be told, you don't have to be that cautious. It just tickles us a bit to give Wizards of the Coast and the game's prior owner, Tactical Studies Rules, a bit of a ribbing when it comes to this sort of thing because they do have a habit of flinging legal injunctions around and maintaining a tight control over their own intellectual property. That is actually kind of central to this week's word. Because recently, we here at the Word of the Week, we have started playing a few other fantasy role-playing games, and we found ourselves wondering about the name of one game in particular. And the story of the birth of that game has this litigious control at its heart. It's the story of a group of gamers striking out on their own and venturing into the gaming frontier to avoid that control. And the story of the name of that game has, at its heart, the story of people venturing out into a new frontier and the conflict between exploring and adventuring versus leashing and controlling that frontier. This week we're telling the story of the word Pathfinder and the game Pathfinder by Paizo Publishing. Now, if you're not familiar, Pathfinder is a fantasy adventure RPG about parties of fighters, wizards, clerics, and rogues wandering a medieval-inspired fantasy world and having exciting adventures. Many of those adventures involve delving into underground mazes and structures, killing monsters, plundering treasure, and occasionally slaying a dragon. And the resemblance between Pathfinder and that other fantasy game is not particularly accidental. Not by a long shot nor is it particularly new. Pathfinder was designed by Jason Bullman and was first published as a standalone game by Paizo Publishing in 2009. And Bullman and Paizo made no secret of the fact that it was, in fact, meant to be an alternative to D&D, offering the same type of gameplay and the same basic experience. Heck, they made no secret of the fact that they used a lot of the rules of Dungeons & Dragons and we'll get to why in a moment. As we said, publishing what we will politely refer to as an alternative to Dungeons & Dragons, and what might be less politely referred to as a knockoff, was nothing new. It was a tradition almost as old as D&D itself. For example, in 1975, a librarian in Phoenix, Arizona, Ken St. Andre, borrowed a copy of the Dungeons & Dragons rulebooks from a friend. And remember, at this point, The game had been freshly minted only a year before, in 1974. 
and St. Andre had some mixed emotions. He was positively excited by the possibility of such an open-ended adventure game as Dungeons & Dragons. But he was not a wargamer by any stretch, and therefore he was a bit turned off by a game he saw as needlessly complex that took itself far too seriously and that required dice nobody had. He thought role-playing games would be far more approachable with a little more fun, a lot fewer tables and charts, and dice everyone recognized. So he partnered with a friend, Rick Loomis, at a company called Flying Buffalo, and they made their own fantasy adventure role-playing game. It took place in the same sort of medieval fantasy universe as D&D, and involved the same sorts of adventures, but it was streamlined, more approachable, and had a lighter tone. Ken St. Andre, Rick Loomis, and the folks at Flying Buffalo made no secret that they were selling their game as an alternative to Dungeons & Dragons. Heck, they even named their game Tunnels & Trolls. They weren't trying to be subtle about it. And Tunnels & Trolls did find an audience. It just wasn't the killer app Ken St. Andre wanted it to be. The game still exists today. It's in its ninth edition, and it's been translated to a lot of different languages. It even made it to Europe before D&D managed to cross the Atlantic and it has been favorably reviewed whenever it has been reviewed. Reviewers often cite its fun and approachability. But it's not Dungeons & Dragons. But without it, you'd never have played any of the Fallout games. See, after Tunnels & Trolls got released, a guy named Mike Stackpole came to work at Flying Buffalo, and he wanted to do something a little bit more modern. The Tunnels & Trolls framework was great, but to translate it to a modern world you had to make some changes. Make it less reliant on classes and archetypes and more reliant on skills and talents. And thus, Flying Buffalo published Mercenaries, Spies, and Private Eyes. Meanwhile, there was this guy named Brian Fargo. He'd founded a company making computer role-playing games called Interplay, and they'd just finished their own take on fantasy adventure and dungeon delving, The Bard's Tale which was a loose imitation of the wizardry series of dungeon-crawling RPGs. And just to make sure we're being totally clear here, Fargo didn't write the bard's tale. His high school buddy did, Michael Cranford. Cranford was the fantasy buff. Brian Fargo was more into post-apocalyptic sci-fi, after-the-bomb stuff, Mad Max, you know. And Fargo had this idea for an RPG set in the nuclear wasteland of his favorite Mad Max stories. But Fargo was also very ambitious. He wanted a big world to explore, stretching out in all directions. Delving into dungeons and slaughtering monsters just wasn't enough. And then he got a copy of Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes. He realized that if he wanted to design such an ambitious computer role-playing game, maybe he should talk to some of the pen and paper guys. And so, he reached out to Ken St. Andre and the crew at Flying Buffalo and they started to work together on a massive post-nuclear computer RPG. And Ken St. Andre even came up with a name for the game. Wasteland. Released in 1988, it did everything Fargo wanted it to do. It had a huge, for the time, game world, and the environment was persistent. It changed as you explored it. Most importantly, it had a very open and flexible system that allowed players to approach challenges, even combat, in a variety of ways using the skills they'd chosen for their character. And the team had a great time making it. St. Andre, Stackpole, and others even headed out to the Sonoran Desert, kitted out in Mad Max attire, 
to explore and take photos to publicize the game. Eventually, Wasteland would inspire its spiritual successor, Fallout, and Wasteland would be converted into a tabletop role-playing game system. But through a strange quirk, it ended up being published by Steve Jackson Games as part of their generic universal role-playing system, or GURPS. But those stories are for another time. The point is that Bowman and Paizo Publishing weren't breaking any new ground when they published an alternative to Dungeons & Dragons, nor in using Pathfinder's status as an alternative to D&D as a marketing draw. But their reasons for doing so were kind of different. The story of Pathfinder actually starts back in the early 2000s. It starts with the invention of D&D, really, but the interesting bits start in the early 2000s. Wizards of the Coast had just rescued Dungeons & Dragons from vanishing forever with the company that created it. TSR was bankrupt. They were going down hard, and D&D was going to go down with them. TSR had been working hard to get a new edition of D&D out the door. It would be the third edition, but they were out of money and time. In stepped Wizards of the Coast and they saved the game, retained most of the game's designers, and pushed 3rd edition out the door. And it was a rousing success. And among the other changes they had made to the game was the development of something they called the Open Gaming License. See, the gaming community always had this do-it-yourself vibe to it. People love to create their own content, and RPGs inherently promise a high degree of creativity. And with specialty gaming stores starting to pop up, and with the internet becoming a thing, fan-made content was going to be big. Meanwhile, RPGs require a lot of support. And a single company often can't push out enough content to keep all the fans happy. So the idea was that the folks at Wizards of the Coast would allow anyone who wanted to do so to publish content for the new Dungeons & Dragons. They just have to follow some simple rules they'd have to use special versions of certain logos so people could tell the difference between official content and third-party content. This also helped the new company gain some good grace with the fans. See, TSR had gone kind of psychotic toward the end. Management had cracked down heavily on fans creating their own content, especially on those newfangled bulletin board services in America and onlineses and internets started flinging their weight around to stop fans from even sharing their own game content for free. And when we say wait, we mean strongly worded cease and desist orders backed up by a threat to file a lawsuit. And there was a lot of fan backlash. And Wizards of the Coast managed to gain a lot of goodwill from the fans right from the get-go by just officially saying they weren't going to sick rabid lawyers on anyone who just wanted to share their idea for a garlic bread golem on their GeoCities D&D fan page. Note, if you don't know what BBS, America Online, or GeoCities mean, kids, ask your parents. Now, officially sanctioned fan content wasn't new either, and Dungeons & Dragons even had a couple of magazines that had been around for decades that specialized in publishing fan content. Those were Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine. With the open gaming license allowing anyone to publish compatible content for D&D without fear of a lawsuit, various new companies were starting to appear in the gaming space publishing D&D content of their own. And one of them showed enough promise that when Wizards of the Coast decided they wanted to farm out the publication of Dungeon and Dragon to a new third party instead of publishing them by itself, they chose that company, Paizo Publishing. 
Paizo supported D&D's third edition, now called D&D 3.5 by fans because of a revision to the edition that happened two years after its release, for a good five years and change. And Paizo was really good at it. They published modules and supplements and also published Dragon and Dungeon magazines, and everything was polished and held to very high-quality standards. Paizo was doing really well. And then, in 2007, the partnership was over. The folks at Wizards of the Coast had decided to iterate their game again. It was time for 4th edition. And not only that, they had decided that the days of the open gaming license and a heavy reliance on third-party support were also over. The game's rules were heavily modified, publishers would be held to a very restrictive license if they were allowed to publish at all, and Dungeon and Dragon would be taken from Paizo. Now, Ullman had been running his own games of D&D 3.5 for years. He loved the game, and he developed a lot of his own house rules for the game. And he and many other folks at Paizo weren't ready to hang up their 3.5 screens and buy a whole new edition of the game. And they could see a lot of fans weren't ready to change editions either. There was a lot of love for the third edition of D&D still out there. And they also saw something else. The open gaming license wasn't revocable. That is... Wizards of the Coast couldn't shut it off. They couldn't kill D&D 3.5, or stop anyone from publishing their own version of it provided they stuck to all the rules already spelled out, and provided they changed the rules just enough to avoid accusations of just outright copying the D&D core rulebooks. And so, Paizo struck out on their own. They were no longer supporting someone else's game and playing by someone else's rules. Mostly and they entered the gaming frontier with their own game, Pathfinder, which they made very clear was a game for people who weren't ready to give up on the older edition of D&D, because it was an evolution of those rules. And within a few years, by around 2012, Paizo and Wizards of the Coast were neck and neck in terms of fantasy RPG sales. But what about the name Pathfinder? It's evocative, certainly, and you can find it in the dictionary. It means a person who strikes out into the unexplored wilderness and scouts a trail for others to follow. It's a trailblazer, right? And the name has some weight. It's been used before. For example, on July 4th of 1997, the American National Aeronautics and Space Administration landed a spacecraft in the Valley of Ares on Mars. The mission was designed to show off a new way of gathering information about other planets landing a robotic vehicle, a rover, on the surface of the planet. It also used a unique new landing system that involved the thing blowing up a bunch of balloons around itself to cushion its landing. The Pathfinder craft landed successfully and began firing off data back to Earth almost immediately, and the rich data included 15,000 images, over a dozen complex chemical analysis of soil and rock samples, and extensive weather data and the data it sent back helped us construct a picture of Mars's hot, wet past. Three months later, on September 27th, the Pathfinder lander shut down, which was kind of surprising, since it was only supposed to last for a single month before it ran out of juice and went quiet. Meanwhile, it had also released a little robot rover, the Sojourner and the Sojourner roamed around the planet gathering even more data and sending that back to Earth as well. It helped us determine the precise rotational properties of Mars and even estimate the size of Mars's iron core. It observed clouds of ice in the lower atmosphere. It discovered 
magnetic dust in the air, and rounded and eroded stones that suggested complex water cycles and running water had existed on Mars in the past, and it provided information about Mars's heating, cooling, and weather patterns. And then, in March of 1998, we lost contact with the little sojourner completely for the last time. Which was surprising, because it was also basically only supposed to last for a month, and not for nearly a year. But the Martian lander that could wasn't the only NASA project to bear the Pathfinder moniker. Back in the 1970s and 80s, NASA's Environmental Research and Aircraft Sensor Technology Program was working high-altitude unmanned aircraft powered by solar energy. They called their prototypes the Pathfinder and the Pathfinder Plus. And those weren't the first flying Pathfinders, because back in World War II, as strategic bombing operations became central parts of modern warfare, pilots were needed to fly ahead of the bombers to identify targets and to drop flares so that the bombers could spot and blow them up. In the United Kingdom's Royal Air Force, those spotters were called Pathfinders. Given that the name just keeps coming up and that it refers to an explorer or trailblazer, then you'd expect the word Pathfinder is an old word. One of those words we can't quite pin an exact origin on, right? Well, no. We can tell you exactly when the word was first used, when it was coined. 1939. And we can even tell you who coined it. Let's talk about James Fenimore Cooper and Natty Bumpo. James Fenimore Cooper was an American novelist. Actually, he was THE American novelist. And we don't say that lightly or facetiously. He was basically the first major American novelist. He was born in New Jersey in September of 1789. And the more studious among you might recall that the United States Constitution was ratified and went into effect in March of the same year. And that's why we give him such high status among American novelists because he was pretty much the first true American novelist. He was born just a few months after America itself. Now, Cooper was part of a big family. He had 11 siblings, and when he was just a year old, his father, who had served as a congressman back when the United States was operating under the prequel to the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, he was just a year old when his politician father moved his family to a private settlement in upstate New York. You might have heard of a little town called Cooperstown in central New York. Especially if you're a baseball fan. Well, that's why it's called that. At the time, Cooperstown was basically on the edge of America. It was border country. It was the frontier. It wasn't an easy life. But the Coopers were wealthy, and James got a decent education and even served in the Navy. After leaving the service, he married dabbled a bit with agriculture, dabbled a bit with politics, and generally didn't know what the heck to do with himself. And then he started writing fiction. His first major success came in a book about Revolutionary War espionage entitled The Spy. The Spy was pretty much the first dramatic novel to be set against the American Revolution, and it focused on divided loyalties, psychological tension, and character drama. So it worked. But it was when Cooper wrote a story about a pioneer family named Temple of the fictional New York frontier town of Templeton, a large family whose patriarch served as the town's judge, and which included a lot of people suspiciously similar to the people James Fenimore Cooper had grown up with, that was when he really made a name for himself. 
And at the heart of the story was the conflict between the novel's protagonist, the explorer and scout named Natty Bumpo, who was also known as Leatherstocking, and Judge Temple. See, they represented the conflict between respect and reverence for the untamed natural frontier and for the desire to cultivate nature through control. The books were an excellent representation of life on the American frontier, especially in the relationship between the white men and the Native American population. Leatherstocking was a character caught between worlds. He was born a white man, but had been raised by Delaware Indians and educated by German-descended Protestants. And the character captured the imagination of the time. So, Cooper wrote more stories about Leatherstocking. Two more. The famous Last of the Mohicans, and the less well-known Prairie in which Leatherstockings dies of old age. And people were not happy about that. Years later, Cooper realized that people were still clamoring for more Leatherstocking stories. And finally, he acquiesced with a midquel of sorts called The Pathfinder. And that appeased Leatherstocking fans greatly, greatly enough that Cooper got a fifth book out of the series, often cited as the best in the series. The Deer Slayer. And that title, The Pathfinder, that appears to be the first recorded use of that phrase for an explorer or trailblazer. But, putting aside some parallels in the stories, does that mean that the Natty Bumpo novel had anything to do with the naming of the role-playing game that resurrected a dead game for a bunch of desperate fans and, in so doing, forced a company into the wild frontier of first-party publication to avoid legal control? No. But it's kind of weird that the novel, The Pathfinder, is subtitled The Inland Sea and the most populous and popular region of Galarian, the world of the Pathfinder game, is called the Inner Sea. So, who's to say? This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.